Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's Yawa. We are here to answer some questions, and I want to start off by saying thank you for everybody that sent us in questions, and how you sent them in is by commenting on last week's video. Type in Yawa question and what your question is, and that's where we're actually pulling the questions from. Now, if this is the first video that you are finding on our channel, definitely hit the subscribe button. Give us a thumbs up and then open your eyes to the, I don't know, hundreds of other videos that we have already available to you. What he said. So, I'm going to ask the first question. From Sarah Lucas. We are getting our new GSP puppy this October. We live in central Pennsylvania where October can be 80 degrees or 30 degrees on any given day. Do you have any advice on a water intro to a puppy you would get in mid-fall, early winter? Do you think having a delay intro to water, if it's too cold out, will have a negative effect on the dog's impression of water later on? So I thought this was a really good question, and I wanted to mention, even if the air temperature goes from 80 degrees to 30 degrees overnight, basically, today it's 80, tomorrow it's 30, and back and forth and back and forth, Um, gradually that water temperature is going to get colder and colder. And then when it is an 80 degree day, that water temperature still isn't going to be very warm. So that's something to keep in mind. Water temperature and air temperature, two different things. And definitely having a warm, nice day is important, but also having pretty warm, comfortable water for those water intros, especially with young puppies. You don't want too big of a shock to their system, anything that would be a negative association with that water. I think that is the key in this situation is making sure that the introduction is positive and that takes the combo. You can't just say it's 80 degrees outside, but it's been cold. So the water's cold. Um, and somebody was asking the other day about this specifically and what I was able to kind of bring to their attention. I was like, would you get in that water? And like, Oh, it was kind of cold. I'm like, uh, your puppy's not going to be as excited. And sure, there are exceptions to every rule. You're going to have puppies that are just so bold, confident, water-driven, water-loving dogs that they're just hopping in no matter what. Um, and then you're going to have the other side of things that even if you have the perfect storm of optimum conditions for everything, your young puppy might still be hesitant and needs more time to become confident to get in the water. So... Overall, in general, my advice would be if you're having some uncertainty about your water intro, the weather's not quite right, and you've got a young puppy and it's October, November timeframe, honestly, what I would be doing with my puppy is I would be doing other important socialization and development things with that puppy consisting of playing retrieving games, working on recall continued socialization, just building a bold, confident puppy. And then come springtime, even if your puppy's a little bit older, even if they're eight months old, nine months old, 10 months old, a year, come back and come into the spring, hard charging, ready to go, getting in the water with your puppy and showing them how much fun it can be to get in the water and not have a negative experience with it at the end of the year when you might not have an opportunity to get back what you lost um, that year, and then you have to wait on it. I would say having a poor experience in the fall that then you have to sit on and wait until the spring when you can really have all those optimum conditions like I was talking about could have more negative effect than just waiting and building up your bold, confident puppy and then starting from scratch in the spring. I think that goes hand in hand with a lot of things uh, in dog training, but it's very accurate in this situation. And when we are talking about any of the big ones, but all of the ones waiting for the optimal, optimal, or waiting for the optimal time is going to be a better idea than trying to rush something when it is suboptimal and setting your dog up for a bad experience. Exactly. So great great question. question, Absolutely. Next question from Simon H. Yawa, do you think. See, see what he did there? Yawa. Uh Uh-huh. The last one do it? Yeah, she yes. said Yawa question. Yawa question. So yep. makes it very easy for us to find through the comments. Pick out those questions. Yes. Yeah. Do you think it's possible to train a dog for hunting through positive reinforcement only? 
I didn't really want to send him to be trained by someone else. I'm just paranoid that he won't be treated right. But I'm a softy when it comes to applying pressure in the ear or using the string on the toes or even using an e-collar. So first of all, it sounds like what you're specifically referring to is retrieving based, formal retrieving work with an ear pinch or a toe pinch or using the e-collar because you're specifically talking about those specific things. But I suppose any type of pressure on pressure off training could be used in other areas of training. Yeah, there's a few facets to what's going on here. First of all, you talked about um, wanting to use, is it possible to train with positive reinforcement only? So that's one section there. Then you said that you don't really want to send them off. Don't want to send them off because you don't trust someone. And that is a big thing. Just as a little caveat, that's a big thing that we talked about when people say, well, how do I find a trainer? or How would I do that? And trust is one of the specific things that we mentioned. You need to go there or talk to them and you need to feel comfortable. If you don't feel comfortable with who you're considering, then it's not going to be the right situation. There's a lot of good dog trainers out there. Ask um, for references, ask for referrals, read reviews. I mean, there are bad dog trainers out there. There's good dog trainers out there. Now, you also just have to keep in mind that some people, no matter what you do, are never happy, never satisfied, no matter what kind of customer service you've had for them. And they're going to get on the keyboard and warrior it up and talk bad about the situation. But you have to take that into consideration. And hey, if you're considering a trainer and you see a poor review about something, ask them about it. There's usually two sides to every story and getting the um, full story would be better than making assumptions. But read reviews, ask for referrals if you are considering sending a dog off for training and then ask questions of the trainer specifically and feel comfortable with them. Now, let's say even if you were to eventually feel comfortable or whatever, you still want to take on that task yourself, which is awesome. A lot of people do. And I think there is a little bit of, well, probably not a little bit even, it's a lot of bit of a true feeling of accomplishment and the pride that you can put in the fact that we did this together. Uh, I think that if you send the dog to a professional trainer, it'll probably happen faster, maybe end up a little bit on the more polished side of things, but you lose that experience that you gain um, by doing it yourself that you can apply to your next potential dog and things like that. So there are there are pros and cons to both and I, ways. I do know that people sometimes have the best of intentions of getting this young puppy and doing it all themselves, and then they realize how big of a task that truly is, how much equi- equipment is truly necessary to you know train a dog right, well, efficiently, um, without making mistakes. So some of those great intentions end up falling off and then you do seek professional help um, or you get started on the path with maybe help from us on our online dog training community on Patreon and you get up to a certain point that then you don't feel comfortable with or you try and even with our guidance are still struggling a little bit um, because it's not like I can necessarily reach through the computer and do it for you. Exactly. Um, but you may end up deciding at that point you've gotten to a certain level and you're ready for ac- actual professional help. And what Kat was mentioning there was uh, one of the most powerful tools that we have to offer you. We have all these videos and those are fantastic, but ultimately the, the most powerful thing that we have to offer even more than some knowledge is our ability to read dogs and training situations, which we can do for you via our Patreon dog training community. Patreon.com slash Standing Stone Kennels. You can go there, upload videos to YouTube, share the links and a message explaining what's going on, and then we can help guide you in your training path. So if you're looking at doing it yourself, um, those would be things that are very beneficial. Now, to go back to the first part of the question, which was... Positive only training for bird dogs. For bird dogs. I'm going to say right now, I don't believe that... It can truly be done because of the fact that um, negative reinforcement, which would be essentially the opposite of positive reinforcement, doesn't mean just what you were explaining or what you ask about with toe hitches or ear pinches or e-collars. Any form of pressure, whether that's a leash or a check cord or anything, all of those apply Um, either positive punishment or potentially negative reinforcement. And 
they're a very valuable tool in providing some level of correction or ability to just guide a dog in the direction that you want them to go. So as far as doing maybe what you meant more in your question was, can this be done without an e-collar? Um, sure, you're going to have situations where the dog's going to make up his mind as far as I'm going to go do this because they are prey driven animals and you put them in that environment and there's a bird and that's going to completely cloud their mind, like almost a blackout type of situation. Sometimes dogs that prey drive kicks in young dogs that haven't had a ton of opportunities to work through that excitement and pulling that focus back to you without something is difficult. Um, way, 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 way back in the day, pre e-collars. One of the ways that guys did that was with rat shot or light loads or salt shot or something. And they would actually shoot the dog in the butt. Hey, don't chase that anymore. Okay. So redirect their focus. Now that's what it is. Redirect their focus. Pay attention to what I'm asking you to do. Not chasing that bird anymore. I don't know how many people actually did that, but I've heard enough stories that that was a thing that I'm sure it was a thing. Now, have not been there, done that. No, 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 no. Technology and training has come a long, long way. And for those of you that say, well, if technology and training has come so far, then why are we still using e-collars? Well, they are a very valuable, effective training tool when used properly. Can it be done without? Yes, but it's not going to save you headaches. It's not going to put your dog in a better situation. It could actually put your dog in a more dangerous situation where you're in an area that they end up running out into a road and getting hit because a lot of times we hunt along roads or road ditches or fields that are near gravel roads. And then your dog ends up in a a road, gets hit by a car. And all of those things could have been prevented by utilizing the amazing tools that are available to us today. I mean, I can't imagine trying to do things back in the day, pre-collars. Um, it could it be done. Yes. With some dogs, it would be easier than other dogs, but ultimately when it comes down to it, the e-collars are really inexpensive and really powerful insurance policy. And essentially, I would definitely be uncomfortable hunting truly any of our dogs without e-collars in some of the places that we do hunt because of you know, we're in terrain that they're not familiar with. So falling off a cliff. Yeah. Well, even is something that you have to be concerned about big country. When we run GPS collars on, I mean, I, I have a specific story about that, which I mean, the GPS collar isn't necessarily the, the training collar as well, but it's still technology that we are utilizing. And that's what we're trying to get at with the e-collars themselves, our technology to help everything go move along. But in the situation, we were hunting um, public ground in Michigan, and the young dog, who hadn't been familiar with the area, had the Garmin on and um, got on a two-track that somebody was buzzing by on an ATV because it's public ground, right? So they and they saw the four wheeler and went, "Woo, let's go!" And I looked down, going, we do "Free runs off of four wheelers." Yeah, what the heck's going on? We're running. As fast as we can, 200, 250, 300, 350, 400. And I was like, whoa, all of a sudden the dog's like eight, 900 yards away and seemed like it essentially ran this straight ish line. And I, had I not had that collar, I was able to go to her and it took a while to get up to them. They eventually stopped and said, uh, this dog's following us. We don't know what to do. We caught up to her, got the dog, brought her back. But it was one of those things that, on two respects, had I not had that collar, I don't know how long it would have taken to find her. We probably would have found her, but how long would it have taken? I don't know. So yeah, um, definitely a scary situation, but back to the whole, can you train a dog to be a hunting dog with just positive reinforcement training? Well, the whole point of operant conditioning is there are four quadrants with positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, positive punishment, and negative punishment, and they all have their place when it comes to training and their purpose. And there are, parts of those that are to strengthen behaviors. And then there are other parts that are to weaken behaviors. Diminish behaviors, yep. So you want to think about your training and say, well, if all I'm using is positive reinforcement and treats, well, when the dog doesn't necessarily want to listen because they're more excited about something else, birds, wandering off, exploring, yeah, anything that isn't higher value than what we're asking them to do for a treat at that point, they're going to ignore us. And 
in the wrong situation that can be dangerous, first of all, um, as well as can be very counterproductive to advancing our training. So we need to be able to have an open enough mind to utilize all four quadrants of operant conditioning and using them properly and not thinking, well, punishment is bad and negative is bad. No, those are just parts of an equation that add up to a well-trained dog that can be a safe hunting companion. Now, when you look at the dog specifically, because I know somebody's going to come on here and say, I only use positive reinforcement to train my bird dog, yada, yada, yada. Put it in the comments below. We'll read it. The thing about that is when you are looking at other breeds of dogs, some dogs are bred to be more cooperative. Some dogs are bred to be a more in tune to what you're doing with a lot of bird dogs um, in general, they're bred to be independent. I mean, that's a huge part of them being able to do their tasks. So training them, not utilizing any form of negative reinforcement or correction can be fairly difficult because they're doing what they've been bred to do. We just need a way to be able to help them and handle them and talk to them in a way that we can pull that focus away from the distraction to get uh, everything brought back around full circle. So, And I know you said you're a softy. And again, it's not about you know, overpressuring a dog or hurting a dog or anything like that, because what we're doing is we're trying to help the dog learn and succeed. And so we need to use conditioning. Yeah. And we need to use the lowest level of pressure stimulation, whether you're using an e-collar, a check cord, a leash, um, necessary to get the desired response that we're looking for out of the dog. Uh, and just like Ethan had mentioned earlier, so using an e-collar versus let's say even using a check cord or a leash, Either of those things being used improperly can be damaging to a dog, even just coming after a dog and physically handling them and saying, hey, knock it off. You're not supposed to break on that. You're not supposed to move um, can intimidate that dog. And depending on their personality and their their softness of temperament, you know, you have to determine what level pressure, even if it's that physical handling can be used with each specific dog. And some dogs are bold and confident and it takes more to get through to them. And some dogs are little softies and you have to use very low levels. And so reading the dogs is really important so that you don't make a mistake. And every dog is different, even within a breed. Yeah. And I know that I I mentioned some breeds and things like that could use almost solely positive reinforcement training. I mean, but that's going to take that dog that's drastically more dependent. So they're constantly looking for how to please as opposed to looking for something to hunt. But even if you look at other breeds like cockers or labs, a majority, not all, a majority of that training could be done without an e-collar because again, that dog's job is more relative to your location in the beginning stages. Um, But I'm going to tell you right now, when you start doing some more advanced stuff and that dog does get out there, those, that same little cocker that's super cooperative and loves to work is going to chase a bird and want to chase it a long way. And you're not going to get them back until they're done chasing without a way to pull that focus back to you. So it's, um, and then the same thing from the Labrador or retriever world, not just labs, but you get into some of that advanced handling stuff and they make a mistake at a good distance or you give them a cast or handle or something, they do the wrong thing or they change directions. You have no way to handle that until now you get them all the way back to you. And it, it's... So it definitely wouldn't be a, an efficient way of getting training not. accomplished. It's not. So. And... All of that being said, I feel like there's one more part at the end of that, but just in I'm a softie to, when it comes to applying pressure. Okay. So in using an ear or using the string on the toes or even using an e-collar. So then last thing would be the ear pinch and toe hitch method. Again, those are tools that are utilized in a more specific type of training, which is going to be that formal retrieving work aspect of things most of the time. And when you start to incorporate those things, again, like any tool, training method or anything else, it could be used improperly and not ideal. If you have or want to see more of how we utilize it in training, you can watch Legends um, Train Retrieve series that we just put out. And we show in there how we utilize a toe hitch for a form of negative reinforcement and then um, to, to work through some fetch work. And you can see how it's not really as 
bad as it kind of seems. It's just another cue essentially to kind of help when everything is taught with the e-collar can be a little bit confusing. So we teach different ways and apply different things as baby steps to move back to handling with e-collar. So great question. And I think that that is all we're going to have time for in part one of this week's Yawa. Awesome. We'll see you in just a little bit. All right, and welcome back to part two of this week's Yawa. I'm Cat the Dog Trainer. I just had to say that because <laughs> it's not like this is episode whatever. I don't even know what episode it is anymore. Uh, we'll get it figured out so that we can say episode whatever we're at. I don't know either. Um, but we are here for part two. If you missed part one, go back. We talked about a really cool topic, and we want you to go check that out first. It's your first video you were finding on our channel that subscribe button give us a thumbs up and then look at all the vast number of insanely cool videos that we've already put out now we're going to start answering questions and for those of you that don't know or haven't paid attention when we've said it before we are pulling all of these questions from comments on youtube because we're making these videos for you that watch them on youtube as well as we are putting this out on our podcast if you didn't know we do have uh, a listenable version of this available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Okay. <laughs> so getting started from Simon H. Yawa, which is how we like to see these questions start out. It's really easy for me to find them when I'm searching through all the tons and tons of comments on our YouTube channel, which thank you guys all for commenting and being really interactive with our content That's awesome. It makes us feel great. We try and get back to most of them, reply to them, give them a thumbs up. Um, But there is an overwhelming number of comments. Which is awesome. Which is awesome. So I thought this was really funny because uh, you'll hear it in a second. Mm -hmm. For us city slickers, how do normal people train their dogs using launchers or keeping pigeons? I don't think my neighbors would appreciate me launching a pigeon, not to mention it's a small yard and I live in the Denver metro area. So first of all, thanks for referring to us as normal people. We're normal. Ah, that is how that, that was. Yeah. So um, I guess if you live not in the city, you're normal. And if you live in the city, you're abnormal. Is that you're how city that works? slicker. City slicker. Okay. So... Um, <laughs> This is a question that I think is good to touch on because there's a lot of people that own bird dogs, own hunting dogs that live in town and they want to train their dog and they don't necessarily know how because keeping birds, getting birds is difficult um, when you're in town and there's a lot of city ordinances about keeping birds. Every city is different. And then having the training equipment necessary. Yeah. And then the thing with the bird aspect of stuff is people go and try and pick them up when they're available. And then the birds might have to be kept in a bird box for a few days or something. And all so of those things are not as healthy not... and strong flying as they really could be come training time. So yes, there are a lot of difficulties when it comes to training when you live in the city. Um, but there's things that you can look into, especially if you're in the Denver area. Um, I know there's a lot of dog training, uh, grounds around there as well as other groups that train out there. Um, so what are some big ways that we can look at for finding a dog or hunting dog training related group in your local area? So NOV does a really great organization to get involved in, and you can search that by going to www.novda.org, and there are a list of chapters by state that you can look for, and then there's contact information um, or websites for each of those chapters that you can check out and find out when they have training days, how to join. Um, A lot of those chapters have equipment that you can use, or they say, hey, we're going to have a training weekend. How many birds do you want? You can pre-order birds. Um, All these things you obviously have to pay for, but then you don't have to worry about necessarily trying to train in a yard in town with birds or not birds that you have. I also know that um, AKC has clubs and those clubs are pretty prevalent around the area. Um, 
both for retrievers and pointing dogs. And then there are some other games like NSTRA or Nastra that maybe isn't so much a, a club, but you may be able to find somebody if there's network a network and connect with people that have the have, same passion and hobby of working their dogs and training that you could become involved with. Um, as well as you could even look up things like game farms um, yeah. in your area to find out if there's a game preserve that you can talk to them about. Do they have put and take hunts? Do they have an opportunity for you to use the training grounds um, and go out there and work with your dog, set launchers, that sort of thing? Because setting a launcher in a manicured mode backyard isn't going to be truly training the dog to do anything that we want them to do by using their nose and scent pointing um, those birds. So I understand training no. in a small yard like that for bird hunting. You need to have land. You need to have grass. You need to have access to that. Um, so now as you are looking for those things, I mean, I mean, you kind of need them. There isn't some magic halfway. You can't go to a dog park either. No. Things like that aren't probably going to work for you. No, but there are other things that you can be doing in the yard, around the house, or even going to that dog park or whatever that are going to be beneficial on your road because, I mean, let's face it, there's a lot of obedience and there's a lot of handle involved with hunting a bird dog. And if you don't have those basics down, you really aren't ready to move into those next steps that you're that you're specifically asking about. I just searched on Facebook because Facebook is a really great place to meet people, groups, network. And I just searched Denver, Colorado, bird dog training. And there's the Rocky Mountain bird dogs. There's Denver dog training, super cool group. There's dogs unlimited, dog training, elite Denver. Top one, that Rocky Mountain one. Bennett, Colorado. That's not very far outside of Denver. I don't think. Yeah. To the east. There's a Dogs Unlimited Bird Dog Training, Hudson, Colorado. Uh, Dog Training Elite in Denver. Dog Training Camp. Denver Dog Guru. So you could reach out um, Colorado and Wyoming dog training, depending on what you want to do for traveling um, to get to some of these training places. But you could reach out to some of these groups as well and find out, hey, I'm trying to train my bird dog and I live in town. What are my options? So Absolutely. Absolutely. Connect to some people that might be in the same boat as you. And when you get through with that, you know, we do have a online dog training community set up where you can kind of reach out if you find these places and you need additional help. So, yeah, good question. And I think a lot of people actually have that. And I would say no matter where you're at, it doesn't have to be Denver. You can type in where you're at and dog training groups on Facebook. And that might be a great way to connect as well as like I mentioned, Navda's website, AKC's website are going to connect you with some of those other um, chapters and clubs that have training communities. So, all right. What do we have next here? Next question is from Tyler Cook. Tyler Cook? Yawa question. I went to uh, elementary school with a guy named Tyler Cook. Could it be the same person? I don't know. I don't know either. Put it in the comments below if you know this guy from high school. So, question. Any tips on helping pups not get carsick? We have a four-month-old mm. GSP, and she seems very prone to getting carsick. She that tends to sucks. vomit or even short car, on even short car rides. We live in an urban area, so areas where I can give her decent field time are an hour or two away. Would love to avoid the vomit. Will she grow out of it? So that's a really good question, and there are probably more dogs out there that get carsick than we realize. And I think part of that is um, from a... I hate to say it, lack of continued socialization in the sense of car rides continuing after you go to the vet through those, you know, four month shots, then you might not go on a car ride. You might hang out at the house for until your boosters are due in a year yeah, um, a while. for the most part. And that allows the dog to get basically comfortable being at home, not comfortable riding in a car. So that's one thing is just continuing the socialization of, Hey, let's just ride in the car around the block. You know, let's ride to Petco. Let's ride to the farm supply store and get your dog out and moving and comfortable riding in the car. Another thing, a tip or trick that you can think of is um, not feeding them prior to knowing that you need to go on a car ride because having that massive amount of food in their tummy, they get a little nauseous, then they've got something to puke up. Um, another thing that it seems like See, with that specifically though, I noticed that, uh, when we went fishing from a motion sensitive aspect of things, 
I, the first morning, eat nothing before we got on the boat. And then the second morning, I went, I felt great and had a cup of coffee and ate a little bit before we went out to go fishing. And I felt a little bit queasier. So I think that empty stomach even helped me more the first day because the seas were rougher the first day than they were the second day. Yes, they were. So from a motion sickness standpoint, having an empty stomach um, might benefit your dog as well as something that I've seen that happens is the dogs that, you know, are a little uncomfortable about being in the car. They start focusing on, oh gosh, we're in the car. I'm uncomfortable. I can't think about anything else other than being in the car. And then they start drooling and they don't swallow. And then they have this excessive amount of drool and I don't know about you, but anytime I've gotten really sick, I get like my mouth floods with saliva and I'm like, uh-oh, uh-oh, get me to the toilet. So um, I'm going to puke. puke. Um, so that's like my warning signal. So when I see a dog starting to drool, I'm like, uh-oh. Um, and sometimes if you can get them thinking about something else, I know we just said, hey, empty stomach. And now I'm going to say, give your dog a treat. Well, give your dog a chew bone that's not super edible in a sense that they have to work at it. It's enticing. They want that, but they're not going to just crunch, crunch, crunch and have a full stomach. They've got to work at that treat for a little bit. And if it's enticing enough and they can think about having that treat instead of thinking about, oh, being worked up in the car, um, you can potentially help them get through that. Um, Another couple things is depending on the level of anxiety about being in the vehicle and how long it's been between car rides, you might have to just work up to it in a sense of, hey, we're going to just go get in the crate and sit in the car in the driveway. See that Don't leave the car off in the summer. Leave it running so that they've got air conditioning or in the winter they've got heat. Um, But just letting them be in the car and go, hey, see, this is a baby step. We're not worked up. Now we get out. Go hang out in the backyard. And that right there could potentially be your issue. Is the dog riding in a crate or is the dog clipped oh. in with a harness or is the dog just free, free, free running around the vehicle. Um, all of those things could change drastically how they're dealing with the motion of the ocean. Um, we a lot of times recommend crate training and a lot of times that in itself, if your dog is running around the car now, just crating them could help. But then going through a lot of those things that Kat said are going to make a big difference. Yeah. And continuing on with the baby steps. So they get comfortable just hanging out in the crate in the car. Then you drive out the driveway, drive back in the driveway, drive out the driveway, go around the block, you know, build up to a longer one to two hour drive. Um, And then if you make progress and you're able to do those car rides, keep doing them. Don't say, oh, well, we're over it magically. Now we don't have to work on this anymore. If your dog is prone to being car sick, they're going to need continuous training, if you will, to to stay over that um, uncomfortableness about being in the car. And set them up for success. You know, pay attention to these things and have a regimen of not feeding and having that special chew bone to keep them focused on something else. And I think because most of the time when they get that bone, they end up laying down. And when they lay down, they're not standing there wobbling, trying to see out the window too, or, yeah. or whatever's going on. So they lay down, they chew on something, and it distracts them and keeps them focused, not on the movement. Yeah, I forgot. A lot of times they're standing up, and that just exasperates that motion. Whereas if they lay down, lower center of gravity, not moving around quite so much. And then ultimately, if you're still struggling with car sickness and you've tried all the things, my go-to is not to say, medicate your dog, but there are anti-nauseous medicines Mm -hmm. that you can give. I know that we've had some dogs. Um, I don't know about that. I know that there's Serenia and some of the dogs that come in for training have had, um, car sickness. And so their owners will leave some Serenia in case we have to go to the vet Mm. for an appointment or change training grounds. And we're driving down the road so that they don't have that, um, motion sickness, car sickness, um, So check into that. But I know like if you give Serenia, I believe you have to give it 30 minutes before your trip. Don't quote me on that. Um, So don't give it and then hit the road. You need it to have some time to kick kick in. Yes. Perfect. That's a great question. And one that I think a lot of people can benefit from. Yes. This was a good question from Matthew Shero. 
finished. Well, I'm glad you finished the last Yawa. That's awesome. And then you had a Yawa question. Thanks for all the great content and help. My 10-month-old Griff will be going into her first hunting season. Awesome. Awesome. We, um, what are your thoughts on when to shoot birds we find in the field? Should I shoot only ones she points well, wild flushes, or somewhere in between? This seems to be a big topic, and I would love to hear your thoughts. It's a great topic, especially coming into hunting season. Coming into hunting season, yes. Very well timed. So definitely (laughs) shoot all the birds that she points if they're legal to be shot. So if you're hunting pheasants and she points a hen and you can't shoot hens, don't shoot it, Um, but shoot those roosters. Try and not miss, but we all miss, um, so that you can reward your dog for their good works Mm -hmm. and um, a job well done. But hey, we all miss. So if you miss, you know, don't be too hard on yourself. Uh, The other side of it is from a wild flush standpoint, uh, if I've got an opportunity, I shoot all of those birds. Now, there are some people that are uh, diehard pointing dog fans that say they only shoot pointed birds. And that's great. If that is your goal, that's fantastic. But um, with a young dog specifically, we want to get a few birds shot and on the ground and that- give them an opportunity to learn how to mark and track and find those down birds for us. Absolutely. So shooting that wild flush bird, I have no problems with. Now there is one big situation that we're going to say is a uh, do not do if at all possible with that young dog in their first season. And that's shoot birds that they're flushing. If you actively see dog locks up on point or doesn't even lock up on point and speeds up to take out without any cues, handle, anything, direction from dad here. Because you can hunt a pointing dog as kind of like a a versatile companion in a sense of, they go on point and you say, okay, go flush the bird. And That's- I think we've talked about that in another Yawa and we don't recommend hunting young, inexperienced dogs that way. Um, typically, usually older dogs. So they definitely learn in that first season what their true purpose is out there. Yeah. So if you see the dog take out a bird, that's your takeout mode where you see him speed up and flush the bird out. Those would be the ones that we try not to shoot uh, because you're you're essentially rewarding that bad behavior. And that may be all fine and dandy if the dog's in gun range, but on that time when they're not, then and then they it's just not understand ideal. start to understand that hey, pointing is kind of optional because dad's going to shoot them anyway. And heck, heck, it's way more fun to try and catch these suckers so they can learn some naughty habits. Uh, another thing that I would recommend, and this is one that you have to be able to read your dog. Um, some dogs will go on point. And then they'll track up a little bit, go on point, track up a little bit, go on point, track up a little bit. And then there goes your bird. What would you consider that? I would consider that an overpressured bird. The dog's tracking, they're pointing, tracking, pointing, but the bird gets up because they came in and overpressured the bird. And with young dogs, they need to learn how much pressure that they can put on those birds so that they don't overpressure them. And I would not suggest shooting those birds either, because then again, you're just saying, yeah, you can overpressure those birds and they still get shot for you. Well, this is going to be a situation that I disagree with you. And the reason that I disagree with you is in the guiding situation that I'm in, a lot of times for me to tell Bob or Dan or whoever, you can't shoot that bird when I have a younger dog, because we do get the opportunity to take younger dogs with, um, and they're working a bird and we're working with them because they tracked and pointed. And then we get up behind them and then they move on a little bit and tracking point, track, point, track, point, And then that bird gets up. Um, it's kind of the option when we have a running bird, whether that be a pheasant or it's a running bird covey of quail, which they don't do that as much. Usually they get pinned down, but pheasants specifically, it's a situation where it's kind of our only option to shoot that bird. And when they shoot them, they kind of learn, they're learning more and more how to handle them. Um, and it can just take, you start to read the dog a little bit. And if that becomes an issue where it goes from tracking and the bird flies on his own, cause they are wild birds to full takeout mode, then you've got a problem. But 
And I would, I would argue just a little bit that if you're guiding and you've got a group of guys that are out there excited to shoot some birds mm-hmm. and your dog bumps a bird, they're going to shoot it too. They're not necessarily going to be like, oh, well, that dog bumped that bird. I'm not going to shoot it. Or they're not going to wait to ask you for permission to shoot it. They're going to see a bird get up, even if it's a dog that pushed it out completely, take out, and they're going to shoot it. So in a guiding situation, it's not necessarily the best situation to try and, you know, work a young dog that's on their first season of birds that needs a lot of handling and could potentially make mistakes that they don't learn from. You are very right. But if you're hunting by yourself with your own dog and the whole situation can be a little more controlled for you because you're hunting by yourself or just with your spouse or a good friend and it's a small group, that can be a little more controlled. I 100% agree with that. Yes. But I'm shooting the tracked and pointed bird every time. Tracked, pointed, and pushed out bird. Overpressured. Okay. Yep, every time. Well, my dogs are just going to be better than yours then. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that note, folks, uh, that's all we've got time for in part two. Give us a minute and we'll be back for part three. part three of this week's Yawa. See what I did there? I just jumped right in and got my intro in because you got to do the last two. Perfect. If this is your first time to the channel, make sure to hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and put a question in the comments below. Why? Why would you put a question in the comments below, Kat? Because that, my friends, is where we're getting all of your great questions from. We're getting them from our Yawa videos, questions and any other videos that you want to throw a Yawa question on there, just type Yawa question and put your question there and then I'll go through them, find them and ask them next week. Yeah. Yeah. So getting started and I really wanted to ask this one, James Riley. Hi James. Yawa question. Good day. I live in Australia. (laughs) I probably had a terrible accent there, but I think Australian accents are very cool. Uh, Ethan actually has an Australian accent set up for his like Google Maps GPS direction giver. Siri. I turned my Siri on oh. my Apple phone into a Australian man. And I have to say, when we were driving down the road the other day, it was uh, pulling into the parking lot of a hotel. When we went to go get pigeons yes my new racing pigeons they this is so something cool. they're they like are little cool. pets they you are can feed them out of your hand and pet them they are so adorable you just pick them up hold them they love on you all the things i don't know about really love but they let you hold them and and they eat and i love hand. them so we're going to pick up these pigeons and i hear man siri say turn right into the car park and i was like what did he just say Turn right into the car park. So I have to ask, if you are Australian, you may or may not know this. Well, you should know this if you're Australian. Is it is a parking lot, which we would refer to as a, a parking lot. You park your vehicle in front of a business. Is it referred to as a car park in Australia? Or is Man Siri, the Australian Man Siri, drunk or something? <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, to actually get to your question, James... I am currently training my six-month-old GSP pup for quail, deer, and duck hunting. Sounds like a perfect dog to do it. With this comes the certainty of coming across snakes on a good percentage of hunts and currently coming into the warmer part of the year, this will be a concern for me. I know all at I know at this stage my pup will be extremely interested in snakes, so I would like to do some avoidance training with her. How do you guys go about this with your dogs? Cheers. <sighs> Cheers. I love it. So to start off with, I want to say if you are, which it sounds like you're saying you're going to run into snakes. Um, But if you guys are listening, watching, um, and you don't run into a lot of snakes, I'm talking very infrequently. Once in a blue moon, you might run into a snake. 
I would not recommend doing snake avoidance training. Now, it's it's a recommendation. We wouldn't want you to introduce the dog to the snake, especially with the dogs like we have. You know, we have prey-driven hunting dogs and versatile dogs for that matter, so they have a little bit of sharpness to them in extent. And what I mean by that is, for example, Muddy. She got into a porcupine a couple years back and we did a video on that and we posted it on our YouTube channel and we were talking about recently, we're trying to get to a million views on our first video and ta-da! We did it! We did it. And as soon as it hit a million views, now it's at like 1,030,000. So it jumped almost immediately yeah. a ton. So it's very cool. Thanks everybody who's watched that video. If you haven't seen that video, check it out. It's pretty cool. And we actually show how to pull all the porcupine quills out of Muddy's mouth on the tailgate because it happened in the field a long way from a veterinarian and it was better to be able to work through that and you may run into it. Now, people commented in that specific video, I bet that learns her. She won't ever mess with a porcupine again. And I think the exact opposite will be the case. You know, they essentially that porcupine probably just pissed her off and she will, I would assume, Tangle with the next if the opportunity arises. Well, I know Nix does it with skunks. Yeah, that can't be enjoyable to get sprayed in the eyeballs with by a skunk, you know. And I would, I wouldn't think so. But I mean, he, he rolls around on the ground and tries to vomit and scrape <laughs> his eyeballs out. And but if there's a skunk out there, he's gonna find it and kill it. Yes, hundred percent. And when we had coon dogs, same concept. You know, they would be in there to try and grab the coon once we shoot them out of the tree, whatever. They'd try and grab a coon. Well, if there's ever a situation where there's a little bit of a fight, one of the coons got a dog on the ear or something, you'd hear And then as soon as they got loose, it was right back in at that coon. It's like, it hurt. Going to fight them harder this time. All it did was piss them off, you know. And when we first got into it, it was like, uh, if they're going to be a good coon dog, they got to hate coons. And I kind of understand a little bit of what they meant by that. Yeah. All of those things being said, um, the introduction on that dog that probably isn't going to see very many snakes. uh, We just don't need to put value on that animal, snake, critter. Because when you're doing snake avoidance training, it is a breaking process. And like any breaking process, it's eventually going to wear off or need to be refreshed. And it's going to be different for every dog. Some dogs are, you know, a one and done type of scenario, but that's probably the fewer and far between. Majority of dogs, it's more like an annual or a biannual thing where they're going to need that refresher of, hey, remember these snakes? They're bad news bears. Leave them alone. Yeah. So, uh, like I said, the dogs that aren't going to see very many, don't introduce them because you may not do a refresher often enough for it to be beneficial. Now, In your situation, you're probably going to see snakes. Now, the biggest thing that we can recommend is don't try this at home, folks. Yeah. Seek a professional's help. If it's, if you're in an area where snakes are prevalent enough, prevalent enough to be a problem, be an issue, there's going to be people in that area that know how to do snake avoidance classes. And that's who I would reach out to. Yeah, so to break it down, there's a couple things that they're going to be working through. One of which is sight, the next is scent, and the third is sound. Yes. The excesses of snake avoidance training. So what we're going to be, um, and the sound aspect of it is probably primarily rattlesnakes. rattlesnakes. I don't know any other snakes that really make much noise that you would teach but if there is something, throw it down there. I would love to research this. Maybe the other S is strike. Strike. Well, maybe there's four S's. Maybe there's a fourth S. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but in the situation, essentially in the breaking training process, we're going to throw collars on. We're going to turn them up to levels that are high to extremely uncomfortable. And we're going to bring that dog into the scent zone. As soon as they turn, acknowledge, recognize scent, That's bad. Don't go near that. And then that gets repeated until the dog recognizes scent and avoids it. That's what they're looking for. Um, Now, it's interesting that bird avoidance can happen with improper handling, and it looks very Very similar similar to what you're trying to get results with with the snake. Now, the next part of that would be sight. So So you'd come where the dog can't smell the snake. So 
upwind of the snake. And they can see it. And typically it avoids a striking motion at the dog. And then, bad news bears. Then the last would be sound. You pull them in again where they can't see or smell. And there goes the rattlesnake. And bad. So it's um, essentially just saying these things are bad. It's repeated until the dog is no longer interested in the snake. And actually avoids the situation. So the one thing that I will recommend too, because you mentioned your dog is only six months old, fairly young. Um, We have had a situation where a client came out for consult. The dog had had snake avoidance training, but had not had any collar conditioning to recall or place training or anything like that. I remember this. And the dog, when the e-collar was on and we started trying to do some of that collar conditioning, freaked out, lost its mind, was scared to death because the last and only situation that it had ever experienced with an e-collar before was bad. So um, making sure that your dog has a proper collar introduction first and knows how to respond properly for recall or place training or something like that and understands that it's not necessarily the collar that's bad, it's the snake and the result of the snake that's bad um, would be really important. And we were able to work through that, but it took a lot. Yes, definitely. And it would be something to avoid if at all possible. (laughs) See what I did there? Oh, I get awesome question. Good question. Next question. From Caroline Gorno. First off, love your guys' videos. Have watched every one. It said Yawa question. Okay. Yawa question. (laughs) That, see what she did there? Made it easy to find her question so we could answer it here. First off, love your guys' videos. Have watched every one. That's awesome. Which is Almost insane, actually, because there's a lot of videos. There are a lot of videos. We need to have a finished, uh, hashtag finished t-shirts or something like that. Seriously. Keep up the amazing content. Well, you're welcome, and thanks for being a fan, a very dedicated fan. Uh, My question is, your opinion on puppy sizes when born. Is there really such a thing as a runt? Do you find that the size of the puppy has any effect on the dog as an adult? Thanks. The great debate. I'm going to say right now, this is probably one of the biggest things that we hear equal to or right up there with the like the the sex debate, male versus female, which is better, which trains faster, which is smarter, which is all the well, things. Because people ask not all the time, but we do get, I would say, a fair number of questions of, hey, do you guys ever have any runs that you just are giving away? Yeah, some lots of people ask about giving away runs, and then we get a lot of people that ask about, well, I want to put down a deposit, but I only want the runt. I've always yeah. had runs, and runs are the best, and so on and so forth. So, the great debate. So, um, first of all, I'm going to say that from a runt zone, let's specifically talk about the size aspect of things. Okay. So... There are times when puppies come out in, at the whelping time when the puppies come out. Delivery. Delivery. That's the word. They come out in some fairly drastic size differences. They can, yeah. We have, um, and I believe, and I'm not, I mean, fact check me. Let's let's go with this one. But um, there could be dates that the fertilization happens, and it could be anywhere from two to three days, maybe even four days, depending on when the eggs exactly drop and how long the semen lasts and when the breedings or ties happen. And when the eggs are fertilized, when they have placental attachment, all, all the things. All the things lining up. I feel like there are some chance or a pretty good chance for some variants to happen in there um, upwards when, of a few days. And when puppies are days apart, when they're young like that, in the early stages, that growth and stuff changes a lot in those few days. After you get to, you know, six months old or older, a couple days difference, you're not even going to be able to tell exactly. Um, so in the early stages, a few days difference in development, um, and age technically, uh, makes a big difference in size. So to say now, as they develop, even to go all the way up to the ready to go home, eight weeks old, and you have this little puppy that was born smaller, maybe didn't get any additional help, which 
there's a lot of debating on whether you should or should not help and things like that. But um, maybe they didn't get any extra help and they had to work for everything. So we see a lot of things with that runt puppy where they did have to work really hard. And if they don't work hard enough, they get pushed out of the way and then they end up in um, eventually wasting away to nothing if they aren't getting additional help someplace else. So that puppy can become the fighter. And that's what I think a lot of people see from a, a personality standpoint of, you know, runts are the best because they're always tough and they have all this drive. Because they had to work harder for resources. Yeah. They learned from a very young age that they had to work for it. Where the big lug, you know, maybe doesn't have quite as much drive and desire as a little puppy because he didn't have to work for it as much. I can kind of see what you're saying there. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, we have seen the smaller puppies in the litter when they go home at eight weeks grow into be as big, if not the biggest puppies when they're full grown. So there's a lot less to the actual size of the puppy at that time, actually meaning that it's going to be a quote unquote runt. Yeah. And another thing that I want to throw out there, because like Ethan mentioned, you know, sometimes the smaller puppy has to work really hard. Um, they're maybe not getting any extra help from the breeder in a sense of supplementation or, you know, even not supplementation, but making sure that that puppy gets the opportunity to nurse first before all of the other puppies push them off the teat. Um, so going to some, I wouldn't say extreme measures, uh, but some extra measures to help that puppy thrive a little bit more. Um, not all breeders do. So that situation, those puppies do learn that they have to work really hard you know, early bird gets the worm, that sort of thing. And, um, I think too, though, the way that we develop and raise puppies, um, if I do see a puppy that's struggling to gain weight at the same rate as the other puppies is a little bit smaller. Um, isn't one that I always see on a teat where I come down and I'm checking on the puppies. I will say, Hmm, you probably need a little supplementation. And then that puppy, even though I'm still checking on all the puppies, they're all getting biosensor training. They're all getting handled. That puppy that's a little bit smaller mm-hmm. is getting 10 times the amount of time and attention that the rest of the puppies are getting too, because you're handling them, you're holding them, you're helping them nurse, you're, you know, checking on them every two to four hours. It definitely depends on the situation of how often and how much you're supplementing. But in those situations, that puppy's getting more typically physical handling by a person than the rest of the litter. And we've seen that uh, the people end up being the milk truck, essentially. And as soon as you touch the puppy to pet them, to handle them, to do anything, they, they start like, oh, squirming, 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 squirming. I'm ready to eat. Even through that point of, you know, getting enough and catching up and it kind of stopping, it takes a little while for that to kind of wear off that as soon as they get touched or picked up or handled, it's time to eat again. So... There are a lot of different ways to look at how through development things can happen. But, you know, as far as just true size aspect of things, I really don't think that there's a whole lot, um, you know, a whole lot of difference. So what else as far as a part of the question? Basically, do you feel that the size of the puppy has any effect on the dog as an adult? Thanks. Now, the last part of that that I want to say is if there are other underlying health issues with which that runt definitely puppy, can happen, which definitely can happen. And, um, that's why I mentioned, you know, sometimes helping supplement a little bit, um, but not going to extreme measures. Sometimes there are reasons that there are, you know, puppies that aren't thriving. And in those situations, these are the tough times that we have raising puppies. Yes. It's never easy. No. Um, but sometimes that happens and there is a reason for it that that puppy ends up going on to having another health issue that, um, isn't genetic necessarily, but more congenital in developmental stages. You know, something happened in vitro that the puppy didn't develop quite properly. And then they're going to have health issues later on. So all things equal and the puppy's healthy and doesn't have any other development issues, they're going to have the same chances of developing into an excellent companion, excellent hunting dog as the rest of the litter. Yeah. There's really no difference aside from just the size. Yes. So really, really good question. And one that we hear a lot. I mean, a lot of people want to know or have an opinion about runs and I don't think that they're 
100% 100 based on anything other than their one or two experiences. So it's, it's a good thing to talk about. Yeah. So great question. And I don't think that we have time to squeeze in another one. Well, I do want to say, guys, if you didn't get your question answered this week, definitely hit us up on Patreon. That's where we're answering questions on the daily. Patreon.com slash Standing Stone Kennels. And... My drink's gone. Mine's just about there. Folks, and we are out of time for this week. I'm the guy with the pink gun. I'm Kat the dog trainer. And we will see you in the next video.